Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on thebigscreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Welcome back around for Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Great to be with you as we are getting into summertime. Summertime. That's right. And coming off of our most recent episode previewing the summertime movie slate. It's good to be here in the summer. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, located on Highway 2, just down from the airport here in Bemidji. Don't forget about their $5 movie nights on Tuesdays. Kind of hard to forget about their $5 movie nights on Tuesdays. Very, very popular time to go check out a movie at the Bemidji Theater. Don't forget to get some concessions while you're there and support the theater itself. Again, located on Highway 2, just down from the airport. Even if you're not ready to go see something in a crowded auditorium, you want to see the new Top Gun movie or something, and you don't want to sit in the theater, go to the snack bar at the theater. That's what really helps support them. Get what you want. Take it home for movie night, and when you're ready to sit in the theater, go. Right on. Yeah, so it all helps support the Bemidji Theater. It all helps support your local theater when you go and get some concessions from the snack bar there. Today, 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 we are getting into a pretty interesting topic that has a lot to it, that actually does have a lot more to it than maybe you would think on the surface. Ambiguity in the movies. We'll leave that somewhat ambiguous, and we will come back to that a little bit later here That's today. That's a big word, who? What does ambiguity mean? Isn't that the nice white-collar shirt with the buttons that goes halfway down? Isn't that an ambiguitous? Define Ambiguity. What is that? No, but I'm, I'm starting to wonder what exactly you are describing there. <laughs> I don't know. I just picked that up something like randomly. That sounded like a polo a little bit. Oh, that's what they're called, polo. I was thinking of uh, of a cardigan. There we go. <laughs> a cardigan. Okay. <laughs> I was like, that sounds like a polo, a collared shirt, buttons going down. Like That's what it sounded like. Anyway, we'll, we'll come back to ambiguity in a little bit and leave that ambiguous for, now. for you. For now, right now we're going to talk about some current items, including the fact that Top Gun Maverick has soared into theaters and I has, got what you did there. Thank you. Aim high. Thank you. Yes, aiming very high, and has not only soared into theaters and been extremely popular in terms of the box office numbers, but has been a critical smash hit as well. All around, this is looking like a resounding success, Dave. Now, obviously, we're not going to talk spoilers of the new stuff, so we're spoiler-free here. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. You haven't seen it yet either? No, but my interest has been peaked. Yeah, I'm waiting for things to die down a little bit before I go, so I'll probably go next week at some point, trying to see if the wife wants to come with me or if I'm going alone, and that's fine either way. Uh, but yeah, this is, you know, you can say what you want about the original. Boy, it definitely captured the, the pop culture zeitgeist in 1986 when it came out. Uh, but it, you know, when you watch it now, it's a little thin. It's kind of like a Coke commercial. We've kind of talked about that. This one, and I'm only speculating cause I haven't seen it yet, but everyone is saying this is probably better than the first one. Will it capture that zeitgeist again? Like it did in 86. Now that I don't know. 
But uh, I, I certainly don't really know what's going to catch, but you wait and see. But is it a better movie than the original? This could be like Godfather 1 or 2, Alien or Aliens. You know, Is the sequel better than the original when they were both highly lauded? This could join a very rare list. Uh, and also on top of that, Tom Cruise. Maybe you're a fan of him, maybe you're not a fan of him, but Tom Cruise has had a number one movie in five straight decades and now he's got another one with top gun maverick that's That's, unparalleled that's a whole lot of show me the money right there dave (laughs) yeah 156 million domestically at the box office that is a memorial day record and they say people aren't going to movies anymore yeah 156 million dollars this past weekend domestically at the box office that is including monday for the whole of memorial day weekend that is a new record set by Top Gun Maverick. So and you know, hang on, you, you, you smell that? What's that? Doesn't that smell fresh? It's nice to have a movie dominating the box office that is actually something that could happen in real life and not somebody with superpowers. I'm not knocking the superheroes, but isn't it nice to have something that could actually be, if the story was real, accomplished by a normal man who just knows how to fly a jet? Even if it is a sequel, there's that <laughs> item to it, too. That, but a long-awaited sequel as well that has yeah. really clearly struck a, a great, great chord with everybody with the job that it has done. And just like you said, Dave, the critical consensus on this movie is it is better than the original. That it's better in terms of plot. And we have already heard about the technical side of things. Oh, yeah. and. The effort and the extent to which they they went ahead and made everything just so very authentic in terms style of style and substance. Yeah, in terms of being in the fighter jets themselves and filming that way. I looked at this movie like about a month ago and I said, I'm not all that excited about going to see Top Gun Maverick. Great story in case we haven't mentioned this on the podcast, but we may have. Dave and I watched (laughs) Top Gun one time, and that was my first time watching the movie. You invited me to come over, so I came over and we watched the movie. You were like, hey, why don't you check it out? And at the end of it, I was like, you know what? I get what the appeal is here. I thought it was pretty good. I wasn't like floored by it, but I was like, you know what? I get why there is such an appeal with this movie. Now, though, now that I've seen some more of the visuals, like in some of the previews, and I've heard just how good it is, and I've heard so many who have said, you've got to see this on the biggest screen possible, I am planning to go see this movie at some point in theaters. I I am going to make time. Well, I don't know if I'm going to do that, but I... I'm kind of tempted to like <laughs> I, I'm not sure if I'm going to go to that extent but I, I love though once again seeing a movie that is embracing the idea of you've got to see it on the biggest screen you can I mean we've talked about that with Christopher Nolan's movies and just how essential that is with so many of his movies I love the Top Gun Maverick has embraced that same idea that it's a, a movie going movie in a lot of ways, and yet one that apparently has a lot of substance too. Yeah, you know, I'll, let me give you a little time capsule here because I remember when the first one came out, it was all over the school when I was going to school back then. 
But there wasn't an option to see it somewhere not on the big screen. It's not like today where you could see it everywhere. But everyone was talking about the sound of it. I mean, the sound mixing was almost, that was almost the first, you don't really think of it, but it was so broad in with all the doot, 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 and all the jets and all the music and all the voice. It's all coming together in this mix like you've never really seen before in a movie prior to that. And then when it came out on home video or on pay-per-view or whatever the case was, and you could actually see it at home, you got to have a stereo system set up for this. you got to hear it in stereo. That was the big push back when it came out in early 87 on video or whatever the case. And it was so big. Well, now you've got probably the same kind of sound mix, but we're so used to that now with a lot of those bigger movies. you got to hear it in a properly calibrated room or setup. you got to see it on the big screen, and it just sounds like we're kind of going back to those blockbusters that are deliverable and you don't need to have seen chapters one through 30 to get up to speed on where we are now and the larger thing. From what I understand, they do harken back to the original movie a bit. Obviously, Goose's son is involved and you know that's its own story. Um, I don't know if he's bitter against Maverick or not. I have no idea. I haven't seen the movie, but I know it's a contingent. Um, so your knowledge of the first one is limited. You should still be able to enjoy this first one. And that's kind of another breath of fresh air. So it just sounds like it's a win-win and that's awesome. And I can't wait to see it. So Top Gun Maverick doing very well in theaters right now. And yes, Dave and I will probably get a chance to see it here at some point. Maybe we'll even do a review on it similar to what we did with the Batman. Sure. Possibly. We'll, we'll keep you posted on that. Speaking of 1986, yes, let's go retro with something new. Uh, on the str- small screen. On the smaller screen, but it's still very, very big right now. Let's talk a little streaming. We'll get to Star Wars, but let's get to Stranger Things on Netflix. First part of the fourth season, and the second part will come out around, I think, July. So around 4th of July, I think. So you'll get, you'll get the whole thing before long. I haven't seen it yet. I'm still kind of re-watching all the way through, and I'm coming to the end of season three. I've already seen it, but I'm kind of reminding myself, and I'll probably get into the fourth season before the weekend, I would think. I realize... You've seen a few. Yes. No I, spoilers. I have watched the entire first volume of the fourth season, which is quite a feat because those are long episodes. They they are really, really long, these episodes this, this season. Point of comparison, previous episodes they're 40-ish minutes give or take uh 45 minutes maybe so these are almost like double length so these, if you think i'm gonna just pop into one episode you better think twice these are almost like their own movie they are clearing an hour and you have to keep in mind too that a lot of the characters are in different locations now it's not necessarily as if everyone is in hawkins and it's that easy this season it's not but it has led to some very lengthy episodes with everyone kind of splintered off in different areas, but they have gone all out. And I realized, Dave, that despite that little recap that you watch at the beginning of the new season, I was like, oh man, I need I need refreshers on some of these people and what happened with them in season three and who's who. And I, I needed to remind myself on Paul Reiser's character a little <laughs> bit and who exactly... Oh wait, yeah, I remember him, but I was like, boy, I haven't watched these in a while and I just plunged right back in and went for it. And it's like, Man, it's been a while since we had some Stranger Things content. It is it has been a few years and of course that certainly reflects with the kids. They are 
They are not kids They're anymore. Not kids anymore in no. real life, but they are still portraying kids in the show. Isn't that um, kind of the norm? They had twenty-five-year-olds playing kids on nine hundred two one zero back in the nineties. Yeah. So it, it's just falling into the same thing, and that's okay. They're talented. They're good. Yes. Uh, the word is when they get around to the fifth season, that's apparently going to be the last one. Right. I've heard the term spinoff. Possibly. Don't know what that's going to entail. Stay tuned. But. Apparently, it's getting great reviews. Everyone is just hanging in midair, waiting to see, I'm assuming, some sort of a cliffhanger uh, that'll probably be picked up here when we get to the second part of season four around 4th of July. But great reviews. It's the, a lot of love. And Netflix, they haven't released the numbers, but what they are saying publicly is that it's the biggest thing they've ever had out. Um, we'll see if the numbers support that when they, you know, cause you could toot your own horn. That's all the numbers are private, but when they come out and you hear from third party perspectives, uh, we'll see what the reality is, but I got to think that probably is true. Uh, stranger things has been their flagship for a long time. And with Netflix numbers dropping significantly, this might bring a few people back into the fold. Well, I guess I got to see the new stranger things. We'll see. This was well-timed. Yeah. Because stranger things has been one of the biggest tentpole items of Netflix. It, it has been, from the get-go, like, th- that show has been, I would I would say, their biggest success story, because they have had, they've had, of course, a lot of content that has just kind of gone by the roadside and has not been all that interesting. Stranger Things has been right there in the pantheon of the top Netflix shows in terms of popularity and in terms of critical success. Well, it's an expensive show to make. I've, it I read it somewhere, somewhere, I can't remember what it was, but it was something like $100 million per episode just to film it. So when you factor all that in over X number of episodes, that's a lot of money for one season of a show. And uh, I'll admit, the reason I have Netflix to begin with was because of Stranger Things. I signed up for it years ago, and I'd heard about this strange something, something, strange brew. What is, what, huh? And it's only on Netflix. Eh, all right, well, there's other movies, too. Let's, let's get Netflix. Let's see what we got. And love it, and love other things on Netflix, too. The other big streaming story is the arrival of the long, long-awaited... And wanted. And wanted. Limited series of Obi-Wan Kenobi on Disney+. Plus, It is only going to be six episodes long. It is truly a limited series. First two episodes dropped this past week. I believe another is going to be on the way on Friday, and then we go from there over the course of the next month. But Obi-Wan Kenobi is now available for streaming. And not only that, we're not recasting stuff. You've got people from the prequel movies, Ewan McGregor, of course, and Hayden Christensen, who took a lot of flack after the prequel movies. Will he ever come back? Well, he is. Welcome back, Hayden. He's in the mask. He's Darth Vader. And he did play Darth Vader for that half a second scene in the end of Revenge of the Sith. That's him in the suit. I'm assuming James Earl Jones is back, too. But I also got to think it could be anybody in the suit, really. It could. So I'm assuming. I haven't seen it yet, so no spoilers for me. I'm just speculating. At some point, he's got to have the mask off. Or he's got to show up in force form or something because he and Obi-Wan are going to interact in some regards. But as we know as Star Wars fans, they haven't really seen each other since they face off in the Death Star in A New Hope. So maybe as we learned in some of the sequel movies, you can kind of force project and talk. You got to think something is going to connect them so they kind of interact without actually fit. I'm only guessing. I, I will say so far... If you are worried about continuity issues of any kind, first two episodes, 
it actually makes pretty good sense. It makes some good sense as far as the overall continuity of the story. I heard it fixes a couple of plot holes that have popped up over the decades. Yes, that there's at least it has started to. I, I think I need to see how the rest of the show sure. is going to, to play out, certainly. But so far, it is putting together some good patchwork in terms of being able to fill in some of those gaps and that there is space to be able to do that. Plus, it's just it's just an intriguing idea of checking in on, on Obi-Wan post-everything that happened in Revenge of the Sith and pre-everything that happened by the time A New Hope rolled around. You know, I've, I've heard this was just a one-and-done. I've heard also recently they are starting to talk internally about a second season of Obi-Wan and even asked at the Star Wars celebration over Memorial Weekend, mm. someone was asking Hayden Christensen, would you ever be open to doing a, like a Darth Vader series? He said, oh yeah, sure. So, so who knows? Who knows? Stay tuned. <sighs> I think that's a perfect lead into our conversational topic today because I like having an open landscape like the one of that gap between revenge of the sith and a new hope dave because sometimes you don't need everything answered sometimes it's just it's kind of neat to have this this open canvas that maybe fuels your imagination a little bit but doesn't need to have canon items that are are in there that has to putty it in and fill it up and and completely put it all there that's why I like that this is a limited series with yeah. Obi-Wan. I, I like that there is a a beginning and end kind of cutoff point with it that you go with a little bit with the story, but we don't need everything that happened in the, what, 28 years that took place between those two movies. You know, and there's, there's another thing, pros and cons about going back in time. If Obi-Wan gets put into some critical situation, my goodness, will he make it out? Well, you know he's going to because you've seen things with him later. You know he's not going to make it out of the Death Star from the original movie. But, you know, I, I, you know, you just know that certain people are going to make it. They're going to do the Andor series. You know he's going to make it out of any scratch he gets into because the Death Star blows up the whole planet with everybody on it, including him in Rogue One. So you know he's going to live through everything up till that point. So going back, there's good things, there's bad things, and that's one of the bad things, but it's just it is it just kind of is what it is. I like moving forward, uh, and you just don't know where things are going to go from there. It could be open world. Well, you know it's got to get to this. I like when that element is removed, and you just don't know what the future is. You suspect, but let's go on a ride and let's find it out. Perfect segue into talking about ambiguity in the movies. First. Unanswered questions in the movies. But yes, big, big first item to add. We got to put up the spoiler alert because we're going to talk some of the big things here that go through some of these movies. So if we start talking about a movie and you haven't seen it yet, we are probably going to spoil one of the big components of it. So be aware from here on out, we will be talking spoilers. You have been warned. Dave, let's start right there. Is it okay to have unanswered questions in movies? Heck yes. I, I'll, I'll, I'll I feel like we need to reassure some people about that. Here's a good way to start it. Um, uh, I remember listening to some behind-the-scenes talk with Leonard Nimoy about one of the Star Trek movies. And he not only plays Spock, but he directed a couple of those movies. And so the very first scene you see... In Star Trek Four, is this mysterious probe coming out of a nebula and it's making some bizarre sound, and you you find out later it's a language, and you kind of figure it out that they're trying to they've lost contact with humpback whales on Earth because in the twenty third century they've gone extinct. So this probe comes to reestablish contact. 
the producers of the movie, the studio, they wanted subtitles. Where are you? I haven't heard. I mean, actual subtitles of this bizarre probe. And Nimoy and the filmmakers are like, no, it's supposed to be mysterious. You don't know what it is, what it wants, what it's doing. We'll figure that out as we go. And the audience will come along for the ride. And through the course of the movie, they get it. Um, but right off the bat, no, no, we need to spoon feed them. No, 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 no. Figure it out on yourself. You shouldn't have every question answered. It's like sitting on the couch with my wife watching a movie. Is so-and-so going to die? I'm not telling you. you got to watch the movie and find out. Yeah, but does that guy die? I'm not telling you anything. You Just go along with the ride. Figure it out. You will have all the questions answered at the end of the movie, or will you? Because there are some ambiguities. Now, let's define ambiguities for just a moment, shall we? Ambiguity is it's not really clear. It's not really for certain. Well, it's, it is or it isn't. I don't know. Could go this way. Could go that way. We're going to give you some specific examples, but it's unanswered questions. It's, well, well, what happened to the guy? I don't know. It's ambiguous. We don't know. I think that's one of the cool parts of, of movies and movie making, it, where yeah. you see some of the artistic side of a movie come into play where let's say you go to an art museum and you're looking at a painting and sometimes you try to figure out, well, what exactly does this painting mean? What does this painting symbolize? And that for an artist, there's a, there's a lot of, you can interpret this for yourself. You can, you can create this for yourself in terms of what the idea of this painting is, what the, what the point of this is. Sometimes it's, way too ambiguous and it's like okay there's um this is maybe a little bit too abstract for for everybody but i i like that there is an open for interpretation idea that does exist with films because that that adds and that lends that artistic side to when you are putting together a movie a story an idea that comes with a movie and a story and that those are the kind of things that leave an audience talking about a movie long after it exists. Because if you tie everything up perfectly and you you wrap it all up, that's all well and good. But it doesn't leave people talking about your movie in quite the same way. When you have unanswered questions, that's one of the cool things, is that people will talk about your movie for long after it. Or... If you do such a, a masterful job of crafting a story that has an audience member having to go back and watch it again to piece it together, I think that's a form of ambiguity as well, even though maybe the answers are there throughout the movie, but you have to go back to watch them again. There are degrees to this, but it keeps your movie relevant and it keeps your movie having people talk about it and try to figure that out and, and speculating, what did they say at this particular point? We'll, we'll get to that one, I'm sure. Or what was the meaning behind this? There, there's a lot of those when it comes to ambiguity. I think one of the differences between movie going public is some people just kind of consume movies like you would a beverage and you just you consume it, you move on to the next one. If you're a movie lover, Hoove and I, and people like us, we might go to a movie and then maybe afterwards swing by a restaurant for some late evening pancakes and discuss what we just watched. And it's nice to say, well, this performance was good and I liked how this thing was written. All movies can have some discussion about it, but it's nice when you have questions. Well, what about this thing? And what do you think that meant? And I thought that this guy, wasn't that her husband, but wasn't it meant to be like a parallel of some? It's interesting when you can go a little deeper and when movies kind of set you up for that with ambiguity as one of the many possibilities, it makes for 
I mean, what a movie is really supposed to be is not just a journey, not just a story, but stimulating. And when you're done with it and now you're still going on, the movie continues even after the credits are done rolling and you're still over at Perkins talking about blah 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 over pancakes. That is awesome when it comes to movies. One of my favorite movie memories was in college watching Prometheus with couple friends of mine, couple roommates of mine, and then we stayed up and we talked about that movie for three hours after we had watched it. We were up until like 2.30 in the morning talking about that movie, piecing together different elements of it, thinking about what does this mean, what does this mean. Like, it was really, really enjoyable just to pour into that movie with those guys and just try to figure out what we had seen, try to put the puzzle together. In some cases, using pieces given to us. In some cases, trying to interpret what those pieces meant. Let's go down a bit of a list here, or a bit of a tour. I've got mine just alphabetized, I guess, because maybe I was anal obsessive or something. But uh, let's start with another good one that some of you may not have seen, but it's a darn good movie. Uh, it's from the horror thriller genre, 1408, as referring to a hotel room number. It's a very Stephen King-esque movie with John Cusack and Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, real quick, the story is about John Cusack's character, who is quote-unquote an investigative reporter, but only really a name only. He writes a series of books, the 10 most haunted hotels you can stay in, so he goes to any bed and breakfast anywhere with a horror story about the bridal suite and you'll hear whoo and of course it's all you know he doesn't believe in any of this and it's just you know schlock it's just a way for him to make bank and then he hears about this fictitious hotel in new york city with room 1408 so he goes to stay in it not expecting anything and samuel l jackson is the hotel manager who cannot talk him out enough do not go in there. You know, there's, I forget what the number is, but like 93 people have died in this hotel room. I don't want you going in here. I will bribe you to not go in it. I'll upgrade you to the best room we've got in the building to not go there. Ultimately, Cusack wins out and he gets to spend the night in the room and just things go mad. And the end of the movie is ambiguous in a couple of different ways because there were different endings shot. Oh, wow. So, and you can see them all if you still have DVDs and you can watch the version. The theatrical version is one. Uh, there's another one. And there's an ongoing subplot where John Cusack's daughter in the movie had died previously of a disease. And as he's devolving into madness in this hotel room, is it, he's just, is it all in his head, kind of like The Shining? Or is there really something truly evil controlling this room for whatever reason? And his daughter keeps showing up in this room well, nobody believes him, but he's a you know an investigative reporter, so he's got his little you know type recorder, and he's you know speaking to himself about you know what he wants to write later. After all this is over, he's at home, and his you know his, his ex wife is going all through his stuff, and she plays this tape, and she can hear the daughter's voice from the room. Was it real? Maybe it was real because how else did that voice get on the tape? Was it really in his head? Was it really an evil thing? Did he just go crazy? It's left up to your imagination. But it is a darn good movie, and it's up to you to decide. You know, I th I think you raise <laughs> an, a really interesting point there, Dave. And it's something that we have talked about horror before, and I think it's something that horror in particular could embrace more of. That oh yeah, unanswered questions and ambiguity have a horror element about them, or there's this chilling 
nature about them that you don't have the answers. And especially when the audience doesn't have the answer to some of those questions, I think that creates a horror feeling that, that comes with that. That there's this, there's this terror and there's this scariness about the unknown and about not knowing an answer to it. I have two horror-related ones to, to that very extent. For instance, you mentioned The Shining. Why was Jack in that photo <laughs> at the end of the movie? What what was the deal there? What what exactly was that supposed to mean? I, I've seen various interpretations of why Jack was in that photo at the very end from from the past. Like was this was this some kind of symbol of madness? Was this like some symbol of reincarnation? Was that what exactly was the meaning? behind that but it kind of makes you wonder a little bit and there's a creepy element to it when you finish out the movie with that and you go what exactly does that mean looking at that the other one that i have comes from the master of suspense alfred hitchcock and that's the birds where did the why did the birds attack the people what exactly caused them to attack the people there was that same question, I believe, was raised in the trailer for the movie itself, and it's never answered. It's never answered in the course of the movie, and what we are left with is this foreboding feeling that you get all throughout of, why is this happening? But it's never answered, and then you are left with this haunting image at the very end of the movie of the characters driving slowly in this car, looking to leave the bay... And looking to leave the town with the birds all perched up along the telephone lines, along the houses, watching them go off into the distance. And the, sh- the shadows and all the birds just perched around make it a very, very creepy looking image to close out the movie on. And you are left with that unanswered question too. And it just adds to that feeling of horror that feeling of terror that comes with it even if it's a little bit older now and maybe it doesn't hit the same way that's still a creepy movie to watch and that i think is one of the reasons why because we have an unanswered question in there and i think it's something that horror could do more of oh i agree i think sometimes even if you just kind of barely mention something night of the living dead how are these bodies coming back to life and wandering around Absolutely, there's another good one. Throughout the course of the movie, they're watching the news, and they only mention it in passing about this returning satellite that has crashed to Earth, and it's implied that that might be tied into it. And, of course, in the years since, well, yes, it encountered some sort of a blah-bitty-blah, and it's having an effect on whatever... You know, but it's left really, it's just a throwaway line almost. And if you don't pay attention to it, it doesn't really answer the question as to why. And depending on the zombie movie that you watch, a lot of them just don't have a why. They just are. Accept it, you know. So there might be your ambiguity right now. Well, that doesn't really happen to dead people. They don't rise like that. Um, But that's, it's just another zombie movie. You just kind of accept it as it goes. When it comes to things like The Shining, I've, I've been critical about, Stanley Kubrick, very publicly, as I'm not a huge fan, uh, uh, every single movie he does has got a high degree, more or less, of ambiguity. Um, 20, 2001 in particular, it's all about it. Well, here's an artistic piece. You determine everything. When I wrote see. down my list, I put pretty much all of 2001 yeah. Space Odyssey. Yeah. But The Shining actually tells a story, and it does. it's one of my more favorite Kubrick movies, actually, because it does tell a story. It does leave things up to your interpretation, and that's fine. 
not all of it. It's just a degree of it. Well, how come, why does, there, it's enough answered and enough left up to you to make it happen. Stephen King himself who wrote the books that he doesn't like the version of the movie either, but even it's left ambiguous with even his version compared to what Kubrick had done. But it's it's to the point where that's the, the age-old question that keeps coming up. Why is he shown in a picture in the hotel minutes after all this has unfolded and he's left freezing out in the hedge maze? But he was there 100 years before at some 4th of July party back in the 1920s. How, how, how does – what what – it's was and they, it's even said in the thing he has a spiritual conversation with the previous intaker in the bathroom at some kind of hallucination. You've always been here. You've always been the caretaker. And then he shows up in a picture from way along back. Was he really there? Was it just his spirit? Is he kind of reincarnated? Is he in turn to go around over and over? Who knows? You don't really know. It's not even answered in the follow up uh, when they got back into that. Um, but it's, it's interesting and it's up to you to decide what it is. It's left ambiguous. There's a good definition of ambiguity, ambiguity. Definitely. You want one more horror movie? Yeah, let's hear it. That's a big one. Uh, but it's the original Friday, the 13th movie. So the whole Jason character is what everyone knows those movies of with a hockey mask and all of that doesn't really show up until later, but Jason pops up out of the lake, literally at the very end scene of the first movie. And it was really, the filmmaker said it was intended almost as a joke. You know, it's all over and the murders are done and the survivors out in the canoe in the middle of the lake and the feel-good music is playing. The police show up, they're like, come on in, we'll, we're here to save you. And she's like, oh, it's finally over. And then this deformed, monstrous kid bursts out of the lake, pulls her over. Oh, she snaps awake in the hospital bed, you know, like nothing happened. What about the boy? What boy? We never found any boy. It's left ambiguous, and that is what spurred off all the sequels that, you know, well, I thought he died in the lake. Well, maybe he didn't die in the lake. So the whole chronolo- chronological aspect of all of that is really thrown up into a loop for everything that comes after that. But it's ambiguous in a point, but, you know, you could certainly have uh, debates over it and arguments over it, but ultimately it did bring about a highly successful franchise based on an ambiguous, call it joke, as they describe it. Yeah, is it less ambiguous now though with the answer with what followed in no. the following movie? Still, no. It's you know, well, this couldn't happen unless this happened, but that's not what happened, and so it's kind of retconning a lot of things when you go back, which is changing what has been established history to change it now to suit your narrative. So a lot of those kind of movies, the Halloween ones in particular, there are so many different versions that only exist within their own kind of universe. So to try to watch it chronologically all the way through to get your questions answered, it actually will slowly drive you insane because it only brings up more questions. Because later filmmakers, well, we're going to retcon and bend the reality to fit what I want to do and not necessarily suit what came before. Mm -hmm. So that's its own thing. But I mean, Jason clearly was a popular character character and you know he evolved it wasn't until the third one that the hockey mask shows up and he was the main bad guy in the second one not the first one and it all just kind of came up from him popping out of the lake well we got to do more how can you do more the mom is killed off well what if it was the boy he's dead and in the lake well what if he wasn't retcon i have three ambiguous i have three different categories with my list one category would be for items that are very important to the plot that are left ambiguous one is subplot or small detail items that have gotten a lot of people talking over the years. And then the third one would be ambiguous items that maybe are are left that way intentionally because they are symbolic 
of something larger or they make a larger point with you them. You went deep. I did. And I'll start with the the really deep one there because I've got I've got two good examples of that where there seems to be some intentional ambiguity that was there. The first one comes from The Graduate from 1967. That's on my list too. Think about the way that that movie ends. You you are left with this decision that gets made by Ben, uh, Dustin Hoffman's character, to go off and be with Elaine. And Elaine leaves her wedding and she runs off with him and they sit down in the back of the bus and it's like, "Okay, we're we're getting a happy ending here at the end of, at the end of all of this." Well, then their faces change. And they they start to then get kind of nervous and awkward and they, implied they, so they've made this different they've made this big big change that they've decided to make here yeah and it is implied that now they are kind of nervous like what exactly are we about to do here and now go what? off into yeah now what that's the big question that you're left with there at the end of that movie and it's a strange feeling to have at the very end of the movie but in many ways, was symbolic of a generation. It was symbolic of that generation at that time there in the 60s, facing an uncertain future, trying to figure it out. That's one of the major themes of the movie, is stepping into the uncertain future, which Ben's character, played by Dustin Hoffman, he's trying to figure that out all throughout the course of the movie, and it leads him into... The choices he makes, the different things that go on there, trying to, with so many different people of influence all around him with it, symbolic of the time of that movie and symbolic of the place of that movie as well. Well, yeah, you get the girl at the end, that's the happy ending, but then their faces start leaving you with a less than certain, well, now it's going to go off into this direction. But their faces get a less a big than question. happy movie. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I don't think they're all that excited about where they're going. From the looks of things, you could just see on both of their faces. <sighs> you know, now what? You know, it's it's an interesting way to go. What was another one? Another one you mentioned. The other one is from The Dark Knight, okay. and the, I'm not surprised you're bringing it up. Well, it, it's a good one. <laughs> How did the Joker actually get his scars? We are left with these different stories from the Joker himself of how he got his scars, and then one that never gets told at the very end when Batman shows him how he's going to get these, and then that's how he frees himself. But you never actually hear how the Joker gets his scars. And I was reading somewhere that it feels like that is somewhat intentional that that was done because it speaks to the idea of origin stories in superhero movies, that there there is this obsessive craze to to get an origin story for everybody, to have all the origins explained, to have explanation as far as why is this character the way that they are, and yet with that element of the Joker not being explained, it helps to talk about the Joker really well, because you don't get a clear sense of how the Joker became the Joker within that particular story arc the dark knight trilogy you don't get any explanation of that with the joker he just is he's there and it's a great piece of ambiguity to speak to the idea of origins in superhero movies and that with the joker in that sense in the dark knight trilogy sense there was no origin he just was it was a very different kind of the version of the joker no other version of the joker has the scars like that and the makeup is the makeup. But in some instances, the Jack Nicholson version, his face is distorted because of something that happens in the movie, and it's not makeup. The chemical-looking face is his face. He gets altered. But everybody else has some degree of makeup 
Um, so all the Jokers are kind of different, but the Heath Ledger version definitely deviates from the norm, I guess you could you could say, from pretty much every other version that has come from before. And I think that's part of the appeal of the character. Well, how did he get to the part? Maybe some things are best left unanswered, so you don't know how you get there. And again, it speaks to that larger idea of origin stories with superheroes or with supervillains, and that there's always an explanation as far as why they got to be that way. In a small sense, though, in a small item like that with the Joker, although a pretty significant one with those scars, and you're wondering how did those get there, we're not left with a true answer to that or maybe we were given it but the joker was just taking us for a ride all over the place as far as what it actually was it doesn't really matter it doesn't matter though yeah and again with the joker we never get his explanation as far as how how he got to be what he was but it doesn't matter maybe he already said in another way i just do things that's right Dog, I look like a man. With dog a chasing cars yeah all right um some other ones on your end dave blade runner Yes, I wrote that one down. It's it's not my favorite movie, but it's, you know, the big question that always comes up I just is, watched it the other day. Yeah? I haven't seen the new one yet. I hear it's better than oh, the first. Oh, I, I need to see 2049 But I hear it's well. good. I'll get around to it, but I'm not really driven that way because I didn't love the first one anyway. It's a beautiful movie, but it just, to me, kind of rings a little hollow. I, I like the themes and things, but it just, it didn't. I don't know. It just didn't work. Plus, there wasn't a definitive version for a while, True, too. But that, who cares about that? If you're sitting down and you're watching something, it doesn't matter. There's a lot of different versions of things. So in any version, it doesn't really matter. But one of the big things is, was Harrison Ford's character Deckard a replicant or robot or android or whatever you want to call it? Um, was he himself? And in the movie, his job is to hunt him down and to get him. But is he himself a replicant, and that's the big question that is more or less left unanswered. Now, different people, even involved with the movies, have their own versions. Yes, he is. No, he's not. Depends on what you think, really, ultimately. And that's where the different versions of Blade Runner come into play as well, because with the original version, you would take away a different interpretation than the more recent Ridley Scott director's cut on it, because you get a bit of a different answer there with some of the changes that he made. And what I've seen, and and even just watching that director's cut of it, what I've seen lends itself to the idea that he is a replicant, that, that that idea is kind of out there. And I think Ridley Scott has sort of said things along those lines, or has directly said things along those lines. Harrison Ford, though... I don't care. I thought he said <laughs> he played it more as if he was a human, though. Like yeah. he he wanted to take more of that approach to, it, and that's kind of how he played the character. Yeah, but I mean, even the 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 characters that you know are replicants, whether it's Daryl Hannah, whether it's Rutger Hauer, Sean Young, they are playing it human esque to a point, but also maybe a little more artificial to a point. It kind of depends on the character, which version. Uh, but you know Harrison Ford did play it absolutely straightforward. So was he? Wasn't he? It, yeah, it adds context to the story, but it doesn't change the story really. And then there's the whole thing with the origami horse that he sees yes. in his dream. And does that give you a hint as to one way or the other? You can Google it. Um, it it's just sort of those background questions. It doesn't really matter if it does, but it would be interesting if it was a replicant hunting down other replicants, or if it really is just a guy, Harrison Ford hunting down replicants you know you know what i love too about this question dave apparently 2049 which you and i haven't seen yet but apparently 2049 doesn't answer the question and nor should it i think it's great you know some things like i said it's not 
a big question like, you know, well, who was Master Sifo-Dyas to order this clone army? That's kind of a big plot point in a way, but it doesn't really matter. They're here now, so now we're going to move forward. But things like that that are background context, it adds weight and depth and perspective. If you don't have it answered, then that's still there. But if you have a lot of different people coming up with a lot of different theories, and then you decide definitively on screen that this is the way it is, this is canon, you've just blown up all but one of the various different versions, and now everybody that didn't think whatever the reality is, they're left as, well, I didn't like that as much. I like this. If you leave it open, everybody wins. I didn't even write down Sifo Diaz. That was a good one. Yeah. I'm just just going to throw good it at you out of, out of nowhere. How about a really ambiguous ending to a movie? This is another movie I just watched recently. The original Italian job. Yeah. You've seen it, Dave? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You actually just mentioned this a couple episodes ago, I think. With Michael Caine. Yeah, it is as British as a movie gets. It is just, boy, it, it is so British, and it's so entertaining. And you've got the crew getting away at the end um, with uh, with the music playing and everything, and it's, it's super pleasant. They're popping champagne and celebrating in there um, as self-preservation society plays in the background. And then... The bus goes careening around a corner out of control and it gets stuck on the side of a cliff and everybody is very, very tensely staying to one side of the bus and Michael Caine's character, uh, Charlie, is trying to inch his way down to get to their pile of gold that they just stole uh, from under the noses of the mafia and everyone but the gold is sliding toward the back of the bus and maybe toward the edge of the cliff. And then the movie ends with Charlie saying, I've got an idea. I've got an idea. And then the camera pans back and the music starts playing in this very, very upbeat, jovial piece. And you're like, what? What, what do they do? What happens? Why don't you let the bus go over the cliff and then go down the cliff and get the gold? Do they get away? Do they get the gold? <laughs> like, what's the plan here? We're, we're left with that. And I think it's a perfect ending for that movie because there is such a tongue-in-cheek nature to that movie. It's and, quirky. Yeah, it's very quirky. It's it's just I think it's a perfect ending to that movie where you don't get the clean getaway, but you don't get a clean answer either on what happens there too. I think with some people though, and plus when I was younger, I was bothered by the end to that movie. I was like, What? Come on. I wanna I want an answer. I want a defined answer. Now I look at it and I go, That's a really ideal ending for a movie like that it works it i don't think it would work for a lot of other movies you certainly couldn't end a terminator movie with you know they're hanging on the edge of you need a definitive answer but that movie being what it is and the way that it is so quirky it actually adds to the charm and does it i mean it kind of matters they do win but are they going to win over gravity is basically how this comes to play you can think of a bunch of different solutions but which one ultimately this is the plays in preservation yeah. society so yeah. just because i'm going alphabetical oh, on way, my list oh sorry one more thing oh. they actually there's been a scientific institute that has <laughs> that put forth a, a contest or a test to people to see if they could find a way to work it out so that they could get the gold to move back like having people find ways to be able to do it. i think somebody solved it by like busting out the windows and being able to to tilt the the weight of the bus back in such a way that they could make it work so it, it was funny that there was like a scientific project that was done then where where people could enter and try to come up with ideas on could they pull it off but have you ever lifted a gold bar those are heavy 
very heavy. I have to look yeah. up how much one weighs if it's a like gold bar as an actual unit. They are like 40 pounds or something. It's heavier than you think. So they're up there. All right, back to your alphabetical list. Just because I went alphabetical, and the next one is another ending left somewhat ambiguous, Inception. I know it's on your list, too. Yep. So Very top. Real quick, we're talking about a dream within a dream, and it's about a heist, but it doesn't really matter. But what it comes down to, there's this subplot about still being in a dream, but you're convinced that it's still real, and that's kind of the kick. So you have what's called a totem. It's something that only you know about. And if it is present, there's no way that somebody could make you dream it because nobody else would know about it. And when it comes to Leonardo DiCaprio's character, his totem is a top, like a spinning top. And so he, at the or end of the movie, uh, every time he spins the top, it's basically him reminding himself that he is or is not in a dream state. So at the end of the movie, he gets reunited with his family that he's been away from for a long time. He spins the top, and before you can find out whether the top is going to keep spinning or fall to indicate whether it's a dream or not, the kids come into the house, Dad, he hasn't seen him forever. What parent wouldn't rush off? And you're left with a vision of not him reuniting with his kids. It's almost out of focus and in the background, but the top. And just before it cuts to black, the top wobbles just a tiny bit. Is it going to just keep spinning? Is it going to fall? Boom, cut to black. You don't know. They so is it a dream or is it not a dream? They picked a perfect time to cut to black with that image because it's just a slight wobble. And the best part about just behind the scenes, that wasn't implied. It's not a CGI top. Somebody, DiCaprio presumably himself, just spun it on the table and it just happened to wobble. And Christopher Nolan, you got to think in his excellent vision, perfect. It just worked in. There wasn't supposed to be a wobble. There just was a wobble. And it occurred to us, hey, you know, let it wobble and it straightens out and then cut. You know, obviously in real life, the, the top is going to wobble and fall because it's in real life. But, ooh, guys, what if we did this? What if it went like that? And it just works even more so. Now, there are theories that have been posited, even by some who were in the movie themselves, about what exactly the true answer is to all of that. Now, Christopher Nolan, though, has loved the idea of it being left open to interpretation, and he's encouraged that. But there's been talk that Michael Caine's character, speaking of Michael Caine again, that Michael Caine's character, um, the father-in-law of Cobb, uh, comes in and he was actually on the flight with them. You see him at the airport um, coming and getting him, but there's this idea that he was on the plane. He was the extra guy who was outside of the dreamscape, who was keeping, keeping an eye on things, and that he's the one who comes in then when the top spins out, and he's the one who then comes into the scene and picks it up then, that that he was the guy who was able to keep all of that afloat from in the normal world while they were all going into the dream world. There's also a theory that's out there that the top was not the true totem of, of Cobb's character, that it was actually his wedding ring. And there is talk that that was his true totem that was in there, which then raises the question of, you know, why is he checking the top when he, when he comes out of dreams and such, and it raises a further question there. But it's a great piece of ambiguity. I, I think he's back in real life, but the idea is that it's real for him because he's back with his kids and he's finally allowed himself to to 
see them because otherwise throughout the movie he just isn't looking because he knows they're not real i know they're not real i know but you do wonder then at the end hey is he still dreaming or is he not it's a great great question left unanswered i i think he's back in real life again but i do too you don't know for certain it's just one lingering question and because it's a nolan movie there's always something lingering as to how exactly did bruce wayne blow up at the end or did he not you don't really know it's ambiguous did he really see him in the cafe or was it just what he wanted to see How about memento oh yeah gracious there's there's all they're all something where you left wondering and left questioning so prestige you're left with a lot of questions oh yeah but that's you get enough of an answer that you're satisfied until there's a couple of lingering things and whether it's a small thing or a big thing it's still a satisfying conclusion but what about uh, 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 what about well, let's stick with somewhat of an alphabetical piece here because I I know you have this on your list and you brought it up to me when we were talking about this episode. I have not seen this movie, but I have heard about this over and over again as far as one of the biggest lingering questions in film. What was said by Bill Murray to Scarlett Johansson in Lost in Translation? You want to expound on this further because you know more about this than I do. Well, it's... The movie generally is about two lost souls that, for various different reasons, go to Japan. You know, Bruce, uh, Bill Murray is a as kind of a washed up actor type, and he's doing you know commercials, while Scarlett Johansson is a newlywed, and they go to Japan, and these two lost souls kind of find each other. It's not a romance, but maybe an emotional romance, I guess, in a way. They don't hook up, but they do definitely connect. They're there for different reasons. They're very different people, big age gap between them, but nothing's really going to come of it. And at the end of the movie, their time together is coming to an end. They're going to they're going to go their own separate ways, and there's a goodbye scene. And in the scene, Bill Murray, you can barely, you can almost hear him saying something, but you can't hear what it is. And he's saying a goodbye, you know, but what exactly is he saying? Because this is some sort of an emotional ending. And uh, would they make a good couple? Hard to say. I mean, there's so much different about them, but they've clearly connected for this 15-minute period of their lives, and now it's over. What do you say in a moment like that? What did Bill Murray say? Was anything scripted for him to say? Or did uh, Sofia Coppola, who's the director, just say, just say something? Did he think something up and just, because you know Bill Murray can ad-lib, did he say something to Scarlett Johansson that was just off the cuff no, no one's talking. No one's going to say what was said, or there's it, clearly nothing in the script uh, as far as people have seen, because a lot of people have seen the script. It's not like an Avengers movie where they hide the script from everybody. It was kind of an unknown script. Anybody and everybody could read it. He mumbles something to her, and they walk off. It's probably what's in the script. But no one's talking, and it's enough of an emotional connection for the audience that I need to know what did he say to her but say goodbye. And so it's one of those things. It doesn't really matter, but in some context, there's a weight to it that would be really nice to know. You'll have to decide for yourself what he said. I have been reading that there were some research pieces done, some sound research (laughs) pieces done to try to determine what exactly was said there in that scene, but there's never been a clear answer. Only Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson apparently truly know what was said in that particular scene. I think I think it's awesome. I, I think that is a great way to leave it because like you said, they're they're going their separate ways, but it's this parting moment and it's kind of cool to have something like that be left in there at the very end. That 
leaves you with those those questions, wondering what it is, but is also clearly a moment just between those two people, even though this is a very quote unquote public thing as far as like this is it's a movie. You know, we're watching all of this unfold before us. We're getting all these details. How hard is it to fit in a moment of privacy like that? Very, very hard to do that. You know, I could certainly, taking a slight personal turn, I don't want to give it too much weight. I I mean this in an uplifting kind of way, but uh, when my father was passing, I had the moment where I knew it was the last time I was ever going to see him. And you're saying goodbye to your parent. And that's one of the most difficult things you could ever imagine doing. And you know you will never see him again. And it was just he and I in the room. And I won't share with anybody, not my family, not my wife, nobody. And it's not that anything bad or necessarily overly profound happened, but it's a moment shared with only one other person, and he's not around anymore, and the only other person that's in on it, and a profound moment, is me. It's my moment with him. It's my moment to share. It's not for anybody else to, not that it's something ordinarily you know, private, it's just that it was a moment with your parent or in this case with uh, an emotional lover, I guess, in a way. It's just a moment, you know, where I'm talking Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson there. Um, that it's just something that's going to be shared between you and I and nobody else. That's it. And that alone is the only reason worth keeping it to yourself. So not as the characters, but as the performers that did it, it's our moment. And not even that, it's not our moment, it's their moment, and it's not to be shared. And I get that. And so to have something like that for people that are emotionally invested in the movie to not get what is, you know, a breakup or not really a breakup, but an ending, it's as important as the beginning, but you don't get it because it's a private moment. Let's stay on the romantic side then for a moment, because I think a great movie ending that is left ambiguous, but suits the movie so very well is the ending of Sleepless in Seattle, Yep. because you have this entire movie that is built around these two characters Sam and Annie, who are working their way toward each other from a distance through these various, various adventures that that take place within the movie, including her going to Seattle at one point just to, to go and meet the man, and then she freezes up at the moment of seeing him and goes racing back across the country and, and back to Baltimore. So by the very end, though, they meet at the Empire State Building. They finally meet there on Valentine's Day um, with Sam's son Jonah making this cross-country flight there to uh, to go meet Annie himself, and then Sam goes running after him. So at the very end, they finally, finally actually meet and talk to each other beyond just a hello with her almost getting hit by a car. And then you are left with them going down the elevator, and that's the end of the movie. That's what we are left with, which I think is a great ending for that movie. With the way that that movie was made, it's such a different kind of romantic comedy movie. And I think it's a perfect ending for that. But you're left with, well, what actually does happen with them? Like, does it all work out in the end? Like, what? we need to see more. No, we don't. I, I thought it was a great way to end that particular type of movie that they made there. And that's part of what makes it such a unique romantic comedy. In a lot of ways, it captures your imagination in a way that a thrilling new romance, you have one coffee date or something, and all the possibilities, not the realities, but the possibilities are the ones that are just... enticing more so than the reality what could what if what about we don't have an epilogue scene of them getting married yeah we don't have a a jump forward in time kind of thing you know like you get in so many other movies whether it's you know hitch or it's Notting hill you get these jump forward in time kind of moments where you see how the rest of the story plays out you don't get that here 
but I think it's really, really suitable that you don't. I think it's paramount to the success of the movie in that it could be whatever you want it to be. Every romantic scenario and first date gesture and blah, 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 it is. Whatever you think it's going to be. And then they're going to go out to dinner that night, maybe. But that's what, if it makes you smile, that's what matters. And they got so many people when that movie came out so captured by just the emotional spirit of the romance that was there. There's a reason why it is a bigly popular movie. When you get into more realistic stuff, like another Meg Ryan movie, When Harry Met Sally, they get together, it doesn't work. But then they come back together, it doesn't work. Do Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks stay together? They did enough movies together from Joe versus the volcano to blah, blah, blah. It doesn't really matter. It's the story. Yeah. It's the story about them getting together and everything else. Well, then they have to have a sequel. No, they really don't. This is this good enough. Yep. All right, let's talk a part that doesn't really matter. It's certainly a, a Hitchcockian thing in that it's the MacGuffin. It doesn't matter what it is. Ah, uh, good old MacGuffin. It's just something that you need to move the plot forward. And when Quentin Tarantino came up with his MacGuffin oh. for Pulp Fiction, <laughs> it honestly didn't matter. I haven't seen Pulp Fiction, but I've heard a lot about the briefcase. So, real quick. The briefcase is, uh, it's hard to describe what the story of Pulp Fiction is anyway, because it's so disjointed and it's different stories that kind of intersect, but we're... It's point of view stuff. Right? Yeah, in a way. But what this is about is two hitmen played by John Travolta and, uh, and Samuel L. Jackson that are trying to get back this briefcase of their employer, Marcellus Wallace, played by Ving Rhames. And the briefcase through various points is opened up. You don't know what's in it, but... Whatever is in it, it glows. It glows. It's got a golden glow. And I mean, literally, when they made the movie, it was just a light bulb put in the briefcase that just shined a light on the actors' faces. That's all it was. And Tarantino said, it doesn't matter what it is, but let's make people wonder. So what, what, what's glowing in there? And there's a lot of fan theory. Could it just literally be gold? Could it be Marcellus Wallace's soul? All kinds of things. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Uh, and, and he's never going to give an answer. Even Tarantino has said, I think I know what it is, but I'm not really sure, and I don't really care. It doesn't matter. It's got people talking about it. So what is so important that it's worth killing for or dying for for this soul? There's a, The last scene in the movie, which is also the first scene in the movie, is a stick-up in the restaurant, and the gunman finally sees what's in there, and he completely his disposition changes from that of hostile to Oh my gosh. Almost eternal peace. What could it possibly be? Is that what I think it is? Mm-hmm. I mean, what could it be? Probably not gold at that point. It's something else. Could be Tinkerbell, for all we know, glowing purple or whatever. Uh, the it's an opposite inter- of Pandora's box, yeah. it seems. It's, it's a very interesting concept. What is in the briefcase? I don't really have a theory. I think it's interesting that it could be a soul, but I also like to think that <laughs> whatever that movie is is based in reality, and I don't think you can capture a soul in a briefcase, unless it's a special briefcase, and even then it's you know out of the realm of necessarily reality. So I don't know what it is. I don't really care. I think it's interesting. Dave, when it's Tarantino, I think anything and everything is on the table. That's true. Pretty I mean, much. he could certainly alter history with Inglorious Bastards and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It doesn't matter. When it comes to Tarantino, what it really is is a good story. How based in reality that is is a whole other thing. Were you entertained? Yes. Well, then you're good. Let's combine what you just talked about, a MacGuffin, with what we just previously talked about, Tom Hanks. Put them together, and what do you have? You have Castaway. 
and you have the FedEx box. <laughs> what was in that FedEx box that he decided he had to deliver one way or another, even at the expense of poor Wilson, he brought that FedEx box with him across the ocean, back from the dead, back from the island, and he got it delivered one way or another eventually to that lady on that ranch. What exactly was in that box, we will never know. Well, it's funny. There's that scene in the movie, he's got to take stock of what he's got to survive on this island after the plane crash, and he's opening up all these FedEx packages that it was a FedEx plane, of course, that have washed up on the shore. Here's ice skates. What are you possibly going to do with ice skates on a deserted island? Well, he finds ways to Quite make it lot. useful. You could actually, they came in very handy. Funny enough, the director of the movie, Robert Zemeckis, probably jokingly has announced what was in that box, but I think he has just done it as a joke. It was a waterproof oh, transmitter, yeah. satellite receiver <laughs> transmitter. Basically, he could have just yes, turned solar powered. I did see that. He could have turned the thing on and, I'm on this island, I need help, and that would have saved him. But that's he never opened that box, so he never got to open up the transmitter. But that's just Zemeckis and his humor. Was it really what was in the box? I don't think it matters. Same kind of thing. What's in the box? What's in the box? It would be hysterical if that was the case, if there was some kind of transmitter or some kind of satellite phone that was in there, which I, I have heard those very same things. And it, it'd be hysterical if that was the case. And um, I think we would have seen a, a major, major blow up on our movie screens there at the very end of that movie instead yeah. of what we got. Yeah, it would so. have been a short movie. You know, if it's, it's like in any horror movie, if all the kids would do is just stay out of the woods, it would be a really short movie. Let's all stay in the house and barricade it all together. Nobody separates. Get the guns. Okay. Roll credits. Well, the, that's one of those those ambiguous questions that's not really that big of a deal to to a plot when you have something small like that. But it's one that, that makes you ask some questions. I've got a similar one, too, that comes from Jurassic Park. And that's the question of what happened to the stolen embryos. That, oh. that you have in there. What happens when, when you have Wayne Knight's character, um, I, I keep thinking Newman every time <laughs> I, I see him, when when you have Wayne Knight's character stealing those embryos Nedry. and then, of, say that again? His character was Nedry. Yeah. It just it just Ned, came to me. Yeah, Nedry, that's Nedry. right. Um, so he's he's running off, and and then, of course, he, he gets stuck. He, he crashes his, his Jeep. He doesn't make it out to the to the boat and then he gets attacked as well and all you see are the embryos sliding off and then getting covered up by mud by mud which i think is is symbolic on its own that it's going right back into the ground but what happened to those embryos do we never get a, a full answer on that unless it's symbolic that it goes right back into the ground well ultimately it doesn't matter because in some of the jurassic world movies the fallen kingdom isn't that the island that blows up from the volcano so whatever the situation is they're not going to be salvageable granted they were mined from under the earth in certain conditions to be in the first place from the you know ember and so forth but these embryos there's kept in cold storage you can't just have an embryo sitting out on the shelf and it'll be fine let alone stuck on the bottom of a mud puddle even if you did find them and the volcano didn't blow up the island i don't think they'd be any good dennis so, nedry dennis nedry yeah come on, dennis come on dennis yeah <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's an interesting story but to me it was all the, going through all of this for not is kind of the message that it was telling me yeah that's, i think that's how it seems to be but you still kind of wonder because there was all that effort that dennis went through to to be able to um to get those embryos and then all of that just for them to get covered up by a pile of sludge and mud. Yeah. yeah. Anything else from you, Dave? I've gone through my list. I've got a few. Uh, let's go back to uh, a, a Scorsese movie and one of the big ones, Taxi Driver. 
And you've got, it's a violent movie with this, you know, just call him what he is, deranged taxi driver played by Robert De Niro that, you know, really kind of got him noticed in a lot of ways. But the end of the movie, it is kind of ambiguous. He goes on this violent rant. But then things that start to happen, the way it's presented on screen, I don't think are realistic at all. You know, he's going to save... Jodie Foster's character, and she is just eternally grateful, despite seeing all the stuff that he's capable of doing and does do through the movie. Realistically speaking, she wouldn't she wouldn't be running to him. I mean, maybe using him as a method to get away and then running away from him too would probably be more realistic. He's getting civic awards. He's probably the idea of the ambiguity is he's wounded. Is he bleeding out and is he hallucinating the end of this? Are you seeing on screen what his interpretation is as he slowly bleeds out and hallucinates this ending that doesn't seem all that realistic anyway, where he goes down in a blaze of glory as a hero, or is it just some hallucinogenic? effect of just losing your life and you just start to fade into fantasy land as you drift away because mm. nobody would respond the way that they do respond under those circumstances it just doesn't seem quite right well why would how could are you seeing the reality or are you seeing a warped perspective which clearly his perspective is warped anyway and now a lot of blood loss on top of that is that a possibility so you can determine for yourself whether uh, Travis Bickle, right? Is that his name in the movie? I, think? I haven't De Niro's seen Taxi character? Driver, so I'm not sure. I, I think it was Travis Bickle. I'm having, I'm close anyway, but it was. Uh, uh, I haven't seen it in a long time, but yeah, it's it's a good ambiguous ending. Is that really the? I don't know. You you tell me. All right, since I know you won't comment because you don't have, uh, you didn't see it. Yeah, sorry. Did you ever? I, see I like it? hearing about it though. Did you ever see the thing? Specifically, John Carpenter's version. of Oh, it. I have seen the thing. Yeah, it's been very. It's ambiguous. been a while, but I did. I did see it. Yes. Where is it? Where did it come from? All of those things. Well, yeah. it's clearly from space because in the there's now there's an there's an older version from the fifties, I think, uh, that this is kind of a remake of. There's actually three movies called The Thing, and just about 10 years ago, they did another movie that's actually a prequel, but they just called it The Thing. The Norwegian crew that encounters this thing in the first place, it's going back and looking at their version. So the end of that movie is the beginning of the 1982, 81, John Carpenter version with uh, Kurt Russell. But the end of the movie, one by one, with a long story short, real quick, this alien life form that this Norwegian crew found, and now this American crew has is something that can perfectly mimic anything that it comes within contact of. So as you get this buddy of yours, turns out it's not your buddy, it's this alien thing that has taken over your buddy. But bit by bit, once you're replicated, you're dead. So long story short, the whole thing is whittled down to the last two survivors. They're in Antarctica, and the whole base is burned down. So now you got Kurt Russell and uh, Keith David out in the snow, in the ice. It's a million below. You know they're not going to survive the night because of the cold, and now they don't have shelter. These fires that are burning everywhere are going to go out because there's not exactly natural fuel sources in Antarctica. They're both going to die. But is one of them the thing? And only the thing would know, the other one doesn't, and they kind of both know it's a standoff, you know? Yes. So we're just going to, let's just sit here a while and see what happens. And so there's a lot of conjecture. Well, is this guy breathing or is he just not breathing? Because you'd see breath in cold like that. Are they close enough to the fire that you wouldn't see? A lot of stuff. So is one of them, did they did they get the thing or is one of the, the, the thing? And you don't know. The movie just kind of ends and you, you, you'd know that, you know, whichever the thing is will probably live and whichever one isn't, 
freezes to death or they both freeze to death, you don't really know. And I don't believe we really get anything in the nope. way of clues nope. to determine which one would be the thing and which one would not. But yeah, that's that is a, another really good example. Yeah, another one that I had seen on a couple of lists coming in. It's been a few years since I've seen the thing and I've only seen it once, but yeah, Great another movie. another one where you take the idea of the unknown and you can get a lot of horror out of it. Yeah, it's uh it's an interesting one. John Carpenter uh, had said it's not necessarily the extraordinary circumstances. It's the humanity of trying to make, how do you deal with these extraordinary circumstances? So these are just average researchers on an Antarctic base that come across something just completely bizarre and the way that they all handle it. Uh, but who's left alive at the end? Is the thing gone or is it just two guys that are going to freeze to death or is one of them the thing trying to wait them out and you just you don't know until they make another movie called The Thing. Which would be the fourth movie sequel? Who knows? I got one more on the list. It's going alphabetical. We end with the T and go to another Total Recall. Arnold Schwarzenegger classic, uh, based on a book. Uh, they've had a remake of the movie. Also, I think there was a direct-to-video sequel at some point in the '90s. But the original, uh, it doesn't matter which version of it because they're all basically played on this. You go to the future, and rather than actually going on a Martian vacation, because in the future you can go on a vacation trip to Mars if you want, sure. Or you can get the memory of your vacation or whatever you want implanted in your head. And rather than just going as a sightseer, you could go as you know somebody famous or a spy or whatever. And Schwarzenegger is like, yeah, I'll go to Mars as a spy on this memory trip. So you sit in this chair and they implant this memory and you get up and you go back to your regular life. But you have the memory of this vacation that you never actually went on. Have you never seen the movie? You're not familiar with it? No. I, You're giving I, me the I, look like, what? Well, I, I was listening to the the plot and the tale of the plot i'm really intrigued by it because i know of total recall but i haven't seen it. okay yeah well, the, the i've seen both versions uh the uh, so you take the memory you take of the memory you didn't actually with you you didn't actually do it but i mean if you go on a vacation you had a great experience great so what do you take with you the it's experience? like having a dream exactly and so is it real is it not real it doesn't matter you you go but rather than just going on this trip you just go as somebody else he's like i'll go as a secret agent on this trip but while they're trying to implant this thing, he has some kind of a mental breakdown. You blew my cover. Well, he's just reenacting the memory trip that you put him on. Well, it's hard for that to have happened because we haven't implanted it yet. What? He really is a Martian agent or whatever. What? So the big question to the whole movie, is this a dream? Is he hallucinating or is this real? And it just so happens that maybe his, you know, his subconscious was aware of, I'd like to go to Mars because I had a mission on Mars. I'm going to go as an agent because I really am an agent. Is it real? Is it not? And you're left ambiguous at the end. So, you know, of course, in a Schwarzenegger movie, the bad guys all get blown up and they save the day and he's got the girl and he's got the moment. Oh my goodness. What if this is a dream? Well, then kiss me quick before you wake up. And that's how the movie ends. And so you don't know, was it really a dream? Was it not? But there are clues sprinkled throughout that could lead you either way. Oh, man. So it's, but it's a really good <laughs> science fiction book that, you know, this was based off of. The book and the movie are not quite the same. Neither is the later Colin Farrell remake. They're not the same. The Schwarzenegger version is clearly the better of all versions, a lot of people have said, but the book is also popular. Uh, so it's up to you to decide whether he really was a secret agent or if he was just living out some kind of a fantasy that was implanted and you're just seeing it through his perspective, was his waking up in the chair the first thing that you're supposed to see in this? Boy, you're building the entire premise of the movie 
around an unanswered question. Yeah. And I, I think that's awesome. Like I, I think that is really, really great that they went to that extent with it. I, not a lot of movies, I think, would would be quite that bold to to leave an unanswered question like that truly be at the center of their film but it, you know the movie in itself it has a beginning a middle and an end but it has one big question left unanswered but there are clues throughout the movie personally i think that it was all an implanted dream i don't think he was really a, a, an agent on mars uh there's a couple of things that give it away i think but that's up for those fan debates but you also said there are clues that would take you the opposite yes. direction too. there's there's a lot yeah. of intentional and ambiguity there's a couple of red herrings that are supposed to make you think one thing but in reality depending on how you look at it and does it really matter no it's a good satisfying entertaining movie it was another hit for schwarzenegger he did it just before terminator 2 came out in 1990 i think uh great cast uh paul verhoeven who had just done robocop and would go on to do some other good and not so good movies uh it was a good big hit great cast great everything Great score, Jerry Goldsmith. It's a great movie with one big unanswered question at the end, but doesn't really matter, no, because it adds to the appeal. We live in a time, Dave, where, where people just crave details and information. They, they need answers on plot points, stories. You know, what, what is the deal with this? What is the deal with that? People just clamor for those answers. That's why you get Reddit and subreddit tales and and spins that that go on and on as far as people trying to figure out answers to different things or they're trying to trying to conjure up what the what the real answer to this is right now i'm watching better call saul it's it's my favorite tv show and they're getting into the the second half of the final season here in in a couple of weeks time they're currently on a break after the first half ended the other week and one of the lingering questions for this prequel to Breaking Bad is what happens with the character Kim Wexler? Because she's not in the Breaking Bad universe, and she has become this beloved character in Better Call Saul. What happens to her character in in the story? And everybody is spinning all these different theories about what's going to happen. That's that's kind of who we are. We We need all these answers, and we want them in detail. And unanswered questions are an uncomfortable thing. But sometimes when a movie embraces them, they can be a movie's best friend because of the very thing that we just did and that we talked about at the beginning here. It leaves a lot of interpretation up in the air, and it leaves a lot for you to talk about and discuss. And in many cases, it leaves you coming back to that content and to that movie. I think it allows the movie to continue, or show, to continue, or book, whatever. The story continues after you've read the last page, the credits have rolled, it's faded to black. And if you get a for sure answer, sometimes it can leave you disappointed. Look at, we'll go to Star Wars again. Who was Snoke? Well, maybe Snoke was this and Snoke was that. Well, then it's pretty much answered for you that he was a clone of the Emperor uh, of Palpatine. Well, a lot of people were, you know, well, I thought maybe that could be the case. Well, people that went that route, they were happy to have it reinforced. But other people that went a different route, your thread is cut off. No, nope, it's not that. The answer may disappoint you. Yeah. Who is Ray's parent? Oh, she's got to be a Kenobi. Oh, she's got to be a Skywalker. No, she's a Palpatine. What? So if you thought something else, there goes your, your thread. Sometimes it's nice to not do that and leave things open. Yes, you could be true. You could be not correct. Doesn't matter. 
But if you think that it is and it continues for fan fiction and, and ongoing expanded universes and discussions over pancakes at Denny's and it, it doesn't matter as long as it keeps it alive and keeps it going. That's one of the pitfalls of sequels sometimes. Look at the example that we gave earlier with Blade Runner and how apparently with 2049, you still don't get a full complete answer on Deckard and if he's a replicant or not, which I like. You know, If that truly is the case, I need to check it out and see for myself. Um, but apparently, they don't give a full, complete answer there. But look at what happened there with Star Wars. And when you do answer some of those questions that were, at least previously in some of the other movies, left ambiguous, including they had just they had just kind of left that out there and, and said there's, there's no answer to this in The Last Jedi. Well, then, then they come in Rise of Skywalker and they say, we've got an answer to this. And it's like... Wait a minute! What you just said? There's not. We're left with this ambiguous idea, and now, now you are putting an answer on it. It feels like it's this 180 degree pivot that didn't end up being quite as good as maybe it could have been. Well, I think that was a filmmaker deal. We won't go down that Correct. rabbit hole, Correct. but I think we've been down that rabbit. Yeah, hole. we've been down it. We won't yeah. go down it again. You can rewind and listen to something else. But so that's, we'll, we'll that's leave it at that. One of the problems yeah. of sequels on sequels on sequels is that. In filling in those gaps, in filling in those unanswered questions, sometimes it it takes away from the aura of when it is left unanswered. Yeah, but I'll also say there are examples of ambiguity in filmmaking. I brought up the Sifo-Dyas thing just to stay with Star Wars that George Lucas came up with and was intended to be the real deal. Well, we'll explore that later. They never did. It wasn't meant to be ambiguous. It just kind of got abandoned. Or in other instances, it might be lazy writing. You bring up this concept or this thing or this plot point, and that's all it is. And you leave it alone, but it's important. It needs to be there. Now, can it work to the benefit of the story? Sure. Intentionally, sure. But when it's Accidentally, r- sure. When it's random, though, and when on a pretty important point, yeah, that's there, maybe too ambiguous. Yeah, I agree. There comes a point, and this is why I got critical issues with Kubrick. You know, this, you know, let's let's not go to such an extent where everything is up to your your interpretation of it. Give me something that this is to a point, or it isn't to a point. You know, other things like that don't bother me. I don't care. Total Recall. I don't know if it's real or not real. Doesn't matter. Everything within what you're presented has an answer, except for the big central plot point. Is this really a dream? Is this happening? Give me something. Don't be lazy about it. And don't be, well, it's a mystery for every answer to every question. Give me something. That's where it's nice to have it be consistent with the movie itself. I talked about that with the Italian job, the original Italian job. I talked about that with Sleepless in Seattle. Those ambiguous endings that you get in those movies feel very suitable for the movie that you just watched. It feels like it it fits very well with the kind of tone, with the kind of story that you got there. You have to be able to keep it consistent to make ambiguity work, to where it's not just not just completely left open to interpretation like like we were just talking about there, but where it is it is something that makes a lot of sense. Even if what makes a lot of sense is not getting an answer. Yeah, that's exactly true. It is one of those situations where if it is good for the product overall, then it's good, whether it was an intentional or unintentional thing. Um, but when you, you don't have to have every question answered is what we get down to, to the point, especially when it's crafted that way. Uh, look at any Nolan movie you want, and there's always something there, uh, and done well, intentionally, generally. 
But, you know, lazy writing and just dropping a plot point, eh, it might get people talking, but usually there's a lot of frustration in there. The fun kind of frustration is, oh, I got to know when they got to the bottom of the elevator, did he ask her out? Hey, probably yes. But wherever it went from there, it's probably better that it is left to your imagination rather than not. You know, it's good that you didn't see the shark through most of Jaws. It wasn't working, so it kind of worked better for your imagination to fill in the blanks, whether it was or it wasn't there and what it was doing and blah, 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 because the imagination can come up with something far better than anything they'll ever put up on screen. And I think it's totally natural to ask those questions like that. I mean, I look at the end of The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and I'm wondering what happens to Clint Eastwood's character as he just rides off with, with this money that he that he has now. It's like, I just spent all this time with this character. What happens to him now as he rides off into the distance? You know, what happens with something like, even, even an ending to a story like that, I'm going, what happens next? What happens next? Everyone answers, sure. asks that question. Sometimes it gets answered with a sequel, which... Sometimes it's a good idea, sometimes not, but we all kind of have a natural tendency to do that. But the more that I watch movies, the more that I'm getting okay with not having the answers to some of those questions. How come Shane doesn't come back at the end of Shane? Is he just, I'm going to ride on, or is he dead in the saddle? Right, another... You don't need to know. Another question that's out there, another piece of ambiguity is, is Shane mortally wounded there? Yeah, yeah but, you, and, but those are the good ones that yeah. it makes, it takes a movie, if you do it right, makes it from a good movie to a great movie, from great to exceptional, to exceptional, to classic... It makes it better when you kind of screw it up and stumble into it. Well, it gets people talking. Maybe it brings it up a notch, but not always. And if it's just lazy, yeah, it would have been great only if they just didn't didn't address this and it was lazy to a point where they're trying. But ambiguity certainly has a good place. And some people get mad about cliffhanger endings too. Well, they didn't end it. They will when part three comes out or part two or whatever. This is supposed to be like this. It's not supposed to be answered. Everything is answered except for this one thing, and it's up to you to figure out what you think that means. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, located on Highway 2, just down from the airport. Fun discussion today on some of the unanswered questions in movies. And there are a lot of them out there. And I I really do like that there are so many out there, Dave, because, again, with these movies, they keep us talking about them. That's that's one of the high points. I think, you know, it's been said, everything has two deaths. When you actually pass away and when you are mentioned for the last time, when you stop talking about particular movies, then they truly do die if they don't show up on, you know, Turner Classic Movies or whatever. But when you have things like The Briefcase and people are still talking about what was in The Briefcase, Pulp Fiction lives on. It's almost brand new in a way. People that have heard about The Briefcase but have never really seen the movie Hoof, here's a good opportunity for you to kind of know what's coming and you decide for yourself, what do you think might be in there? Do you think it matters? What do you think it all means? And there's so much symbolicism anyway uh, in a lot of Tarantino movies that it leads in is the Band-Aid on the back of Marcellus Wallace's head connected to that. You know, you can Google all of this stuff and find out what the fan theories are or just watch the movie and you decide for what you think and that'll be part of the lore as far as you know it. That's right. Or even there are endings that maybe you get what seems like a clear-cut ending, but it raises questions. You know, I I think of Vertigo with that. You have an ending there that there's ambiguity attached to it, even though there is seemingly this definitive ending to it, that you are left with a lot of unanswered questions that come with it. You know, again, 
those are some of the things that leave these movies in in that sense of being classic is not having everything perfectly tied off like we would want. While we did go through a lot of spoilers, uh, a lot of this is it's up to you to decide. So in that case, you could still certainly watch these things knowing where the the, the pinch point is going to be, and you determine what you think it is. Go check out these movies if you haven't seen them. I haven't seen the new Top Gun yet, so I don't know if it's got an ambiguous ending or not. But you can go and find out for yourself at the Bemidji Theater on Highway 2 between Bemidji and Wilson. Much thanks to the, uh, to them and uh, their sponsoring of our show and great concessions. So if you want to go get some of those snacks and bring them back home or go see the show, whether it's Top Gun or anything else, it'll be a good summer movie season coming in and we are just getting started. We sure are. Thanks for joining us. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm the other guy. The other guy. What's his face? It's ambiguous. It is ambiguous. And we will see you at the movies.